Hello, and welcome to The Taproot. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. We're delighted to find ourselves back in your earbuds for the third episode in our Season 3 series on Busting Myths. Many of us came up through the academic ranks believing that we got here purely on the power of our own skills and accomplishments. But is that entirely true? Today's guest, Dr. Nidhi Bala, is going to help us bust the myth that science is set up to be a meritocracy. We'll discuss one of her recent manuscripts and discuss how to embrace complexity and diversity as we ask scientific questions and as we mentor young people. Everybody. Today's guest, I am so excited to welcome Needy Bala. She's Associate Professor in the Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology Department at University of California, Santa Cruz. I met her when she was doing her PhD with Andrew Murray at UC San Francisco. After that, she did a postdoc at Berkeley with the fantastic Abby Dernberg, and then she started as an Assistant Professor at UC Santa Cruz. So Needy works on chromosome structure and function in the nematode C. elegans, which makes her our first non-plant biologist to be a guest on the taproot. So do some clapping there. In addition to being a fantastic scientist, Needy has a huge following on Twitter where she tweets about science, but also about diversity and inclusion in the sciences, about changing scientific publishing policies, a lot about politics. And my favorite posts are when she posts pictures of what she's cooking and the cocktail that she's drinking on a Sunday (laughs) afternoon. So welcome to the Taproot, Needy. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So today's paper is, and I will give it my best shot here, PCH-2 TRIP13 regulates spindle one checkpoint strength by Defechel et al. And it's currently on BioArchive. And Needy, can you give us a quick summary of this paper? Sure. So we started working on patch two in C. elegans about 13 years ago. 14 years ago. Um, And we had started working on it in meiotic prophase, which is a topic that I had originally started my lab on and did my postdoc on. And patch two had been identified in budding yeast as the meiosis-specific factor required for checkpoint function. Specifically, if there were defects in meiotic prophase, patch two was required to stall meiotic prophase or arrest meiotic prophase so that those defective myocytes would not go on to generate gametes with the incorrect number of chromosomes. So we started studying it in C. elegans, and we found that it was also a meiotic checkpoint component. But we started doing experiments. We had found this link between proteins in the spindle checkpoint during chromosome segregation, specifically during mitosis, and meiotic prophase events. So where chromosomes pair, synapse, and recombine. And because we had found this link between uh, those spindle checkpoint components, we wanted to see if the corollary was true. Well, so was patch two, which had only been studied in meiosis, required for the checkpoint in mitosis. And so we showed that in 2015 in C. elegans. It was subsequently also shown to be true in in vitro mammalian cells. And this paper is an extension of our 2015 work, where we're talking about in the context of development. And so we decided to look more carefully at that 
between somatic cells and germline cells, between small cells and large cells. And we found that patch two is actually an important regulator of checkpoint strength. So Needy, why are you doing this in C. elegans? Well, one is because the chromosomes are incredibly beautiful in C. elegans. When I was a graduate student, I trained in a lab where I was studying chromosome segregation in budding yeast. And the thing that was awesome about budding yeast was the genetics, the homologous recombination, the ability to generate point mutants, the ability to tag things very easily. But an incredible challenge was visualizing the chromosomes. It just basically looked like a DAPI blob. So DAPI is a DNA dye. So when I decided to do a postdoc, I wanted to have a genetic system that we could genetically manipulate. But I also wanted to be able to see the chromosomes. I wanted a cytological system that allowed us to evaluate chromosome morphology and chromosome behavior. And I basically fell in love with C. elegans after reading several papers. And then once I was deciding where to do my postdoc, it was mostly C. elegans chromosome labs. So, so I read the paper and I have to admit it was a little over my head. But it sounded like you had this, you understood this process and the way that MAD2, how it functions in checkpoint decision-making, and then you basically have added another regulatory step on top of that that involves PCH2, and that this was like completely the opposite of what you would have anticipated its role was. And how did you come to that? It kind of seems it can be often hard if you, if the field or you, even a lab has an idea about how things are working, to like get yourself to think differently about how things are working. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that is very true about this project is is that it was completely unintuitive. So tell us about how you, I mean, how do you get your lab to tackle these paradoxes? How do you get people to think outside the box and think that there's probably something wrong with the paradigm rather than there's something wrong with their data? Well, I think one of the things is that that's when I'm the most excited about projects, right? There's a level of enthusiasm and a sense that we don't actually know how it works, and we thought we knew how it works, and now all bets are off, right? Now we're in a position where we're starting at ground zero, and to be starting at ground zero is both scary and exciting at the same time. And I think one thing that probably is true is is that because I'm so excited about that, I tend to focus on the excitement part and not the scary part. And maybe that makes it easier for people in my lab to feel like, okay, this seems this seems like a good direction to go in. And also like, we could be wrong. I'm okay being wrong. <laughs> I'm often wrong. <laughs> but that's how science works. You put an idea out there, you test it in the best way that you can, you acknowledge the caveats, and you set the stage for the next set of experiments, either from your lab or somebody else's lab to move the field forward and either undermine your story or add an additional layer of support to your story. And that's just how it works. I feel like this is this massively recurring theme on the podcast, going back to talking about shades of gray and, and doubt and, when, and, and the idea that can you publish with doubt? Yeah. Obviously. On one of the other podcasts this season, we're, we're talking about how hard it is yeah. to write about doubt in papers. <laughs> I mean, I think that says something more about scientific publishing than it does about the way we would like to communicate our science. I mean, this is why I think I'm a big proponent of preprints is because that first iteration of how you are thinking about your story is your preprint and is your opportunity to present that to the scientific community in a way that maybe where that doubt hasn't been 
taken out of your paper. Those caveats haven't been taken out of your paper in a way that sets the stage for the next set of experiments. I mean, I think we forget that a big part of the discussion of your paper is supposed to be what you're going to do next or what the field is going to do next. And this idea that papers are supposed to solve everything is really frustrating. And preprints are one way to get around that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I had the impression that all of this stuff you were discovering in C. elegans is not how people were or maybe even still are seeing it in mammalian cells. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, in fact, when we first submitted our 2015 paper that was published in JCB, um, one of the reviewers' comments or the editor's comments were, you know, this looks interesting. The reviewers agree that it's interesting. And, but even if this is the, even if it might only work this way in C. elegans, I think people, people don't want complexity. People want a simple answer. And I am comfortable with complexity. <laughs> I, am, I am looking for complexity. I am looking for, is this really the way it works? Or are there nuances that we are missing? And, and, the, and is that more informative about how things biologically work? And so when we um, tried to publish our paper, there was a lot of resistance and a lot of assumption that that was limited to C. elegans. And then maybe a year after our paper came out, it turned out, that someone had done an analogous experiment in mammalian cells, and it turned out that TRIP13, the mammalian ortholog, did exactly the same thing in mammalian cells. So now it's true. Yes. But the issue is that because it complicates the story to have a factor that's required to both promote and potentially silence the checkpoint, people focus on the silencing part of the checkpoint and not on the promoting. There isn't this attempt to integrate this information more effectively there's a, an attempt to sort of focus on the thing that makes sense and ignore the thing that doesn't make sense. And I think it's almost an implicit thing. I don't think yes. people want to say, oh, I don't like complexity, but I think implicitly people don't. And so then they find yes. other reasons that they're going to say when what the underlying thing is, they don't like complexity. Well, the worshiping Occam's razor is a good example, right? Right. Or also the concept of parsimony. Right, this concept that there's a simple, ex- simplest explanation. The one thing that you appreciate when you work in meiosis, which is so complex, and every time I talk to somebody who I tell them I work on meiosis, they're like, "Oh, I don't understand meiosis." <laughs> Working on meiosis has reinforced for me that complexity is the name of the game, at least molecularly. Parsimony is not. I mean, I think that's a great point. And so I would probably say that, like the work that we do demonstrates that there needs to be lots of different people working in lots of different systems to understand how things work. So when you say lots of different people, I hope you're talking about men and women and people who maybe identify as neither. And you're also talking about people who come from different backgrounds and people who look in different ways. I mean, this is, I think, the big grand challenge of science for the next decade. Are you sure you don't just mean people who come from Boston or the Bay Area? <laughs> yeah, considering that I've lived in both those places, no, I absolutely don't mean that. It's very interesting because there are things that I learned incredibly well in some of the institutions that I trained in, but there are bad things I learned in those places too. It has taken a little while for me not to, to get those out of my system. But I do, this is exactly what I mean, is, is that we need to make science a place where 
people are valued no matter what they look like, no matter how they identify, and that none of that is linked to their scientific ability. Like anybody can be a scientist. Anybody can contribute to science. And this assumption that scientists look a certain way is incredibly damaging. But so can you articulate exactly why diversity is so important? Yeah. One argument you hear is that the best scientists automatically rise to the top. So why do we need to put effort in to change that? Well, one, there is data that diversity, I mean, mostly in the business context, results in situations where more ideas are generated, more different ideas are generated, and that, that often leads to greater success, more innovation and things along those lines. So there is a, a sort of practical, somewhat mercenary explanation for why diversity is a good thing. I mean, I sincerely believe that diversity is a good thing because it's an equity argument. There are people that should be in the rooms that we occupy that are not there because of historic marginalization. I mean, and it is our responsibility as people who currently have power to upend what those rooms look like, to include those people in a way that makes our science stronger and makes our science more equitable and makes our science more widely applicable. So I think one of the most sort of pernicious myths that is out there, it is it comes from people who look and sound like me, mm-hmm. where we say, well, I'm really open to all ideas. Exactly. If, it, if someone has a good idea in science, we're going to hear it and it will win out. And the data doesn't show that. Yep. The data shows that we, just as like the idea of this complex ideas, we don't like them, so we push back against them. Yep. But we also do that, I think, for people who don't look like us. And yep. some of it is completely overt. Some of it is, is very implicit. And that's something that, you know, certainly I would not pick up on because I don't, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen to me. But you, Nidhi, you, you obviously have a very different perspective coming into science from I do. Can you give some, maybe some examples of sort of the implicit stuff that you noticed as you were starting in science? I mean, I think this is super interesting. I did not notice this at all as I was starting in science. Interesting. And so I think that when I was starting in science, I was getting trained. There was a certain environment where I was trained that I that was great in some ways and awful in others. There were some, you know, there were constant sexual comments. There were there was um, sexually inappropriate comments. Um, the class that I was in was not very diverse. And I, it never even occurred to me that this was an issue. And it never even occurred to me that the sexual comments that I heard, the sexually inappropriate comments that I heard, like they bothered me, but I thought they bothered me because I was the one who had a problem and not because the environment was a problem. I think that the thing that has completely transformed my opinion is being in a position where I now see this play out with trainees at my institution and other institutions. So now I'm in a position where things that bothered me, but I never really did anything about, I don't want to have other students have to go through that as well. So that that was, I think, one major thing. I think the other major thing was this realization that my ideas were not going to be valued the way other people's ideas might be. This was 
most clearly laid out to me when I started to read about bias in peer review and grant peer review specifically. And so I think the power of generating this data is that, and this, I have to say that this was predominantly the work of Drug Monkey Blog, um, someone who I started reading to try and get um, insight into grant writing because the grant writing landscape changed dramatically when I started my position. And I kind of knew that I couldn't rely on my senior peers for accurate advice because they had gotten funded in a very different climate than I was currently trying to get funded in. And so I looked elsewhere for advice, and that was mostly online, on blogs, and then eventually Twitter. But Drug Monkey Blog was incredibly powerful about pointing out, about identifying studies that demonstrated disparities, pointing out those studies, and then also really analyzing the way NIH leadership responded to the disparities pointed out in those studies. Or did not respond. Well, I mean, they responded. Okay, they didn't respond with policy. That is absolutely true. They responded with words that squarely put the responsibility for that disparity on the applicants themselves. So seeing that language, the issue is not that there's something wrong with the system and that there are systemic contributions that that generate these disparities, but that there's something wrong with the applicant and that it's a deficit model that results in disparities, that these people are undertrained, undertrained, under-mentored, picking the wrong fields to get try to do their work in. So I'm seeing all these arguments online. I am hearing familiar, similar arguments from members of faculty that are training underrepresented students. These students are not equipped necessarily to go to grad school. These students need extra work to get prepared for grad school. These, there's an emphasis on this deficit model of the students and an unwillingness to acknowledge that our system does not value these students and does not value the strengths that these students have. Yeah. Because they do. They've gotten to the point where they are in a way, I mean, they bring something unique and valuable and important to our graduate programs. Yeah, thinking outside the box, right? Not accepting the status quo. Like that's how you got your paper. Yeah. By doing that. And that is what these types of students bring. Yeah. And and also they bring the sense that the work that we are doing, I mean, they make decisions about what kind of work that they want to do. They bring their whole self to the kind of work that they want to do. And it becomes better work. It becomes stronger work. And so it's thinking out of the box, but it's also, you know, bringing, I mean, it's thinking outside of our box, but it's their box already, right? It's, they've already got that skill set. Exactly. And we, we give pats on the back to people, to majority scientists who think outside of the box. But when people already have that skill set, we don't give them the sense of value and space to fully take advantage of that. I think it's also worth pointing out, since we have more of a plant-focused audience, that I, these things are almost assuredly happening in plants, and a lot of the, the yes. data that comes out of NIH is easier to get from NIH because of their persistent study panels and, and just a much larger 
pool to study. So it's much easier to study, but I can't imagine that we're not seeing exactly the same things at NSF, USDA, and those institutions. I would, so I would, I would totally agree with you. I would also highlight that my, right now, my assumption is that bias and disparities based on ethnicity and gender and race are the norm. So in fact, if you would like to make an argument that this, you have to show me the data that that is not true. Yes. And that my assumption is, is that that is the baseline because every study, every opportunity where they can get a large enough data set or even a small enough data set that shows a trend mm-hmm. has demonstrated a level of bias. Having these conversations takes on an urgency in this current political climate like that urgency exists for other reasons as our you know as our population grows more diverse as our trainee population grows more diverse and are trained by professors who predominantly don't look like them but then this political climate makes it very clear that people that the arg- the discussions we need to have are about in what ways do we perpetuate things because we're unwilling to question them yeah i mean i think for a lot of us, I, I put myself in the same box as you as like, I didn't really think about, I thought about gender inequity quite a bit mm-hmm. because I'm a lady, but I did not think about issues of color and ethnicity or sexual identity at all because I'm a cisgender white lady. And I did not really, none of this really came into my consciousness until maybe the last five years. I mean, in a real way where I thought I didn't think yeah, it's a bummer. Like, where are all the black people? But now it's like, yeah. oh, this is my job to fix it. I think a lot of people are, a lot of scientists our age are going through that transition, but there's still a lot of, I mean, I don't know if you saw, there's an article in the Lancet that just came out where yeah. basically these people are saying, well, you know, really got to test our assumptions that there really is gender discrimination in the sciences and like, show us the data. <laughs> it's like, there's so much data out yeah. there. Why would you say that? But there really is a whole population of people who don't think this is a thing. Well, I mean, I would bring this back to our study of BASH 2 and TRIP 13. That's complexity. That is, first of all, there are multiple la- layers of this. There are people who want to think they got where they got because of how good they are. And for them to acknowledge that maybe their gender, their race, their sexual identity contributed to their success in any way can be hard. And I also think that people don't question the status quo enough, that there isn't the sense that, oh, the fact that there are all men speaking at this seminar series or all men speaking at this conference series. I mean, once I have to say, once I started recognizing that, it kind of sucked because then you notice it about everything, right? You notice it, you, and you become the person who's like, actually, your entire seminar series is men. What's going on there? So there's a uh, professor in England, I think, Sarah Ahmed, who has made this point that when you are the one pointing out the problem, like with the lack of gender um, diversity on a panel or the lack of racial or ethnic diversity on the panel, you become the problem. Like it becomes not the person who you are questioning doesn't see it as a problem. So the the person who's doing the questioning becomes the problem. And and I think I made this point when we were planning this 
this podcast. Like seeing all the ways that our environment is not structured to support the success of people that aren't predominantly white cis men is really difficult. And so I'm saying it from the point of view of someone whose success is not supported by this environment. And I think it's also really difficult to be acknowledged by people whose success is supported by that environment. For young people who are looking forward to building their own laboratories, or for people who are, I don't know, even struggling in a laboratory where they don't see these kinds of things happening, or department, or an institution, what's to be done? Yeah. I mean, I would probably say the first thing that is absolutely true is find your people. Find the people that are going to make you feel okay when the people who are not your people make you feel not okay. Right. And so those might be other graduate students in your program. Those might be other young faculty in your program. Those might be other young faculty of color who are not in your department, but are in your university. Those might be people on Twitter. This is where I think the power of Twitter is spectacular. And this is why when people talk smack about Twitter and talk about, you know, it's a haven for misinformation. It's a waste of time. These are people who don't understand that when you are isolated and feeling isolated, here is a platform that skews predominantly underrepresented, where expertise is not always defined by your professional position or your pedigree. And where there are conversations happening that are not happening in our departments, that are not happening at our universities, and that we would like to happen at our universities, but maybe feel like we need that support to develop that strength and the language to bring those conversations back. And so Baranda Montgomery actually has an amazing piece uh, that she just recently published, where she talks about the power of Twitter in generating support networks to build diversity and inclusivity in a way that I think is incredibly powerful. And the fact that she is doing this in academic sphere, I think is also incredibly powerful. And she's actually one of my role models for how to think about building that level of support and diversity for diversity and inclusivity. We'll make sure you listen to our interview with her. I know, I'm excited to hear it. It's a very interesting position on Twitter. I think it's because it's also a place where people get a massive amount of harassment. I don't see it as a white male yes. very much, but there are far too many, far, far, far too many stories of it. Yes. Do you have when you so when you're saying to to go there as a as a place to find your people? How do you find your people without finding the heads? The trolls. I would probably so. I mean, I think that the first thing that you can absolutely do on Twitter is lurk. I think lurking is incredibly powerful on Twitter because then you see what conversations are happening, who's having those conversations, and who accurately represents the way you think and want to think about your place in science on Twitter. And so lurking and following people and maybe not participating in conversations just to get a sense of what it's like is probably a very good first step. I would probably say that there are some things built into Twitter where, where you can choose how to respond to people that you don't know. So there are things where if the person hasn't verified their email, hasn't verified their phone number, then you might not necessarily see their responses to you or anything like that. And so there are ways to, to manipulate and manage your experience on Twitter where you're not going to see 
that kind of thing. I think the other thing is, is that most recently there's been the development of groups to help people find the support they need so that they're not the ones interacting with the trolls, but they get people who are maybe majority scientists to participate and and contribute to reducing the influence of trolls in some of these conversations. And so like nine reply guys on Twitter is like one example of this. These are primarily majority male scientists and you can tag them and they will come into a conversation with to help with when women, female scientists are being harassed on Twitter by mansplainers or anything like that. And so they've come up with a really beautiful taxonomy. It's so funny. Of reply guys. Oh my God. Which I think the beauty, there is so much that is beautiful about the nine reply guys taxonomy, but the most beautiful thing about it is the reality that so many of these negative trolly responses by men are really so generic. And so, and really just, they are not the insights that they think they are. They're super predictable. Exactly. Are, are, are you saying that we white males tend to have an overinflated sense of how smart we are? Uh, I might be saying that. I've never heard that before. <laughs> where's, the, uh, where's the data for that, Needy? <laughs> what's, the other, what's one of them, sea lioning, where you just like keep, keep asking for like more and more information until you're basically like right on top of them. Yeah, exactly. There's just so much about it that is, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with this idea of the Matthew effect. I mean, that would probably be an example. It's, you know, what's the Matthew part about that? Oh, the Matthew effect. It's an effect that was defined maybe in the 1960s. I can't remember that basically that there, as someone gets some level of success, that level of success is sort of exponentially compounded much more than the actual accomplishments would necessarily indicate. And so that there's an overemphasis of someone's accomplishments and expertise if they're a man and that sort of like, then you get more access to resources, then you get more expertise. And so there's this feedback loop, you know, for the lack of a better term. And the response of like, well, I had to work really hard is such a over-exaggerations of everything. Yes. It's like, oh, well, you know, if I had to work hard at one point, that obviously means I never had privilege. And duh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think it's tempting because I think a lot of people want acknowledgement of what they had to accomplish to get where they are. And I think that's fair. I think people, I mean, people work hard to get where they are. I think that, I think what we have to say is, is that I recognize that you worked hard to get where you are. But I think what we're trying to emphasize is, is that some people have to work harder and that's not fair. Right. Right. And so the best, one of the best analogies for privilege that I actually really liked, but when you're playing video games and you have certain levels yeah. and so sometimes just by accident of birth, you come in at one level or come at, in at a lower level. And that means that you just have to work harder to get to a level that somebody else already comes in at. When I was in college, we used to play a card game that was kind of like that called slum, but basically once you got like appointed as a king or a queen, you had so many privileges in the game that you would always win. Yeah. It was a very weird game. But it's, it's, so, it's so funny because I think like things like that show us that we recognize yeah. these phenomenon, but it's, we're unwilling. This is the thing I, I think that is really interesting to me is, is that 
scientists are incredibly critical. When you get your, your reviews back, for example, your paper is stronger because you respond to the criticisms and the, the new ways that they think about something. How you have incredibly smart, critical thinkers in science who don't recognize that our current field does not reflect what this country looks like is always startling to me. Well, it's the myth of, that it's a meritocracy, right? Yes. The myth that well, we're all here in these places because of what we offer. And if people right. aren't here, it's because they don't offer the right stuff. Right. But then you have the conversation with them and you walk them through and you say, so what does that say about who, who gets access to the right stuff? How do we decide who gets access to the right stuff to get to the place that we are? Are you telling me that you don't think that like there are groups of people that don't have the right stuff? I mean, that's the necessary logical leap of merit of assuming that the way our departments look, the way our conferences look, the way our, you know, our graduate classes might look are the result of meritocracy. The flip of that is, is that there is a reason that some people are not here. And is that really what you want to say? Because I don't want to say that. No, we do not want to say that. <laughs> right. You know, so I've been having these conversations in my department because you can't not now. You can't. You have to. You have to have these conversations in your department. And they're hard conversations to have. And I cannot tell you the number of times I have gone in the bathroom to cry <laughs> and then come back out to have the conversation. And I'm not even really good at having these conversations. <laughs> I get super passionate about them. I get super emotional about them. And then that works to undermine my points, at least I think in the eyes of the people I'm having these conversations with. But these are the things that we need to be talking about in our departments. Like when we have a seminar series that has no people of color. So you've given a lot of advice for someone who is not part of the sort of the majority class. We even yeah. discussed a Twitter thread of yours on Gina Baucom's episode about things that males could do in response right. to the Me Too movement yeah. that would be positive for those of us who were and continue to be appalled by things that we're learning that were probably obvious, but not to us. Yeah. What about, if, you know, stepping away from that, we'll, we'll definitely put another link to that thread in our, in our show notes. But if you were going to talking about sort of being better about inclusion and sort of the implicit biases. What would you say to a, a white male named Ivan who actually wanted to yeah. do a better job and may realize that I have these implicit biases, but I'm not, you know, I don't always know what the right thing to do <laughs> right. is here. Give me some, do, do some work for me because you don't have enough to do, but... but <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm married to a white dude, believe me. <laughs> I would probably say get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think that one is such an important yeah. first step. I mean, I think the, the, I think, and I see this so many times, like, I think that people, I don't, I think white people and white men don't understand how often people of color and white women are navigating discomfort in situations that they themselves are not uncomfortable. We have learned at an early age how to manage and navigate our own discomfort. And we have learned 
who, and from that, we have learned who we trust and who we don't trust. And if you are committed to changing that, if you are a majority scientist and you are committed to, to changing that, you need to be willing to listen to the scientists in your group, in your department, in your, tr- in your graduate program that are not majority scientists about what makes them uncomfortable, even if it makes you uncomfortable and not defend and don't become defensive. Don't explain it away and don't expect them to respond the way you would respond. They come from a very different set of experiences and they, how they respond has worked for them in the past. And maybe they need to learn new responses, but that might take time. I would also probably say, take on the work so that the non-majority scientists are not the ones who are identified with pushing diversity and inclusivity in your departments. Or your societies. Yes, exactly. Be willing to do the work. Be willing. So it's a fine line, right? Allyship means taking, using some of your privilege to do that work. But it also means listening to people when they ask you to promote them to do that work instead of you doing that work. So it, I think that this is, this is some of the issue that comes up with allyship is, is that we ask people to, do, to use their privilege, but we want them to use their privilege in a way that does not eclipse the work of people that have come before them and that pe- of people that might come after them. And so it's a hard balance, but you know, you're a scientist. You've figured out how to do hard things before. This is, I mean, I think this is also very important. Mistakes will be made. We don't want a situation where mistakes are not made because mistakes are, an ex- are indicative of learning. They're opportunities to learn. We just want safe environments where we can discuss those mistakes, not feel like we are the problem when we bring up mistakes. Because people are so wrapped up in their idea of themselves being good people. Good people make mistakes. Exactly. And good people learn from their mistakes. Good people apologize. Exactly. Right. And so it's, I have had so many conversations where people are like, but I'm a good person. I'm like, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm saying you have made a mistake. It's the same for science, right? Yeah. People make mistakes with science and good people make mistakes with science and it's okay. Then there's the literature to correct it. Exactly. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Needy. We really appreciate you jumping over into our little plant world to... Uh... Yeah. And I also, I really appreciate that you've made space on this podcast for this conversation and included me as a person who's not a, a plant biologist. I really, really appreciate that. Well, it's, it's been our pleasure. So if people have feedback, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? You can just Google me and find my email address, but it's nbala at ucse.edu. Um, you can also tweet at me. My handle is at needybala. And you can find me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-Y. Liz, where can they find you? You can find me at at E Haswell. And you can find the Taproot at Taproot Podcast on Twitter and on the Plante website. And with that, thanks again, Needy. Thanks, Needy. Don't worry about it. Thank you so much for reaching out to me.
So this brings the first part of season three to an end. We want to thank all three of our awesome guests, Baronda Montgomery, Dan Klebenstein, and Needy Bala for joining us for some of our best episodes ever. We know, believe me, we know it's only been three episodes and we aren't done with this theme yet. So we're getting right back to work and we'll be recording more episodes on busting myths in the first couple months of the new year. If you missed any episodes from this season or the first two seasons, you can find them all on our feed on Plante or on your podcast player of choice. The Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plante website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Melanie Binder. We get editing help from ASPB Conviron scholar Juniper Kiss and social media and blog post writing help from ASPB intern Katie Rogers. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll bring you more stories from behind the science in the spring. Music